In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Giver of life, amen. Good morning. I'm so glad to see you this morning, and uh, Nathan, as you know or have seen, is not with us. Uh, apparently, he's at a national conference of Episcopalian wunderkind, uh, precocious Episcopalians association, something like that. I was never invited to that group. Um, when I was in my mid-30s, I discovered I was very unhappy. So I went to see a therapist, and every week he kept asking me this extremely annoying question. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Recognize that? Maybe some of you had my same therapist. Uh, I found this so annoying, of course, because I really had no idea what I was feeling. He'd say, let's see now, you've just told me you're having fantasies about letting your car drift into oncoming traffic. I wonder what you're feeling about that. And I would say, what? What are you implying? I don't know. It turns out I was so alienated from my own emotional life, so out of touch with the simplest of emotions, that I was in danger of becoming a kind of dangerous person to myself, my family, to other drivers on the road. I needed someone to sit me down on a regular basis and just say, how are you feeling, really? If it hadn't been for that therapist, I'd probably have quit the ministry and become an extremely depressed alcoholic adjunct professor at a junior college in Oklahoma. <laughs> That was, that's where I was headed. <laughs> it was therapy and it was dance and it was my Zen practice that taught me that life was more than just a series of ideas going off inside my head. Even now, this body of emotions and feelings and palpitations and twinges continues to surprise me which is so weird when you think about it because, you know, after all, it is my body. I've been living here for some time. My gut's sending signals up through the vagus nerve. It's my heart pounding away inside this chest. How is it possible that sometimes it seems so far away, so detached from who I am? There's something wrong there. Well, our gospel story today is it's kind of like my, my old therapist. Luke, like John, goes out of his way to remind us that God, God in the form of the risen Christ, is found in an actual, real body. God in Christ is not a disembodied spirit. Again and again, Luke has Jesus challenging his disciples about this. Look, Jesus says, I'm not a ghost, touch me. See, flesh and bones, I'm telling you, look at my hands, my feet, my wounds. Do ghosts bleed? And by the way, would you please stop staring at me and give me something to eat? <laughs> Tradition tells us that Luke was a doctor, but I think he was a therapist. Because <laughs> especially in this day and age, when we live and breathe this 
digital virtual existence when our friends are all electronically created images that we find on our smartphones, when our entertainment consists of going into dark auditoriums where we watch people made out of light projected onto a big screen, when our music comes to us through a disembodied digital signal, I think this message of the real presence of Christ is exactly the kind of therapy our culture needs. The therapy of having old-fashioned analog-type friends, you know, the kind that you can poke and hug and, you know, have a beer with. People made out of flesh and bone who don't always smell so great, maybe, but they always seem to have food close at hand, and that, that's good. Meanwhile, the disciples are there and they're in the presence of their very analog, very real friend who is supposed to be very dead and they are terrified and astonished and overwhelmed and speechless, overjoyed yet still disbelieving, the scripture says. It's like the time I dropped a hammer on my toe. It took a couple of seconds for the pain to come from my toe up to my brain where it exploded. And in those couple of seconds, even though I wasn't feeling the pain yet, I knew something big was about to happen. That's how the disciples were. They're like, I died, died, died. Last Friday night, I was sitting here in this, in this room with about 700 people. Uh, and like the disciples, I think I can speak for all of us, that we are astonished and overwhelmed and speechless like uh, while our magnificent choir and the Portland Baroque Orchestra performed Bach's Mass in B minor. Just check of hands how many people saw that performance. Yeah, huh? Was that church or not, huh? During that performance, I was reminded once again of how vast the difference is between live music and recorded music. There's just no substitute for feeling the vibrations of those actual strings, the feeling of, of the breath of those 67 singers, I counted them, to watch a bead of sweat travel down the neck of the oboist while he's playing this delicate arpeggio. At one point during the credo, the bass singer, Jesse Bloomberg, stood right here in this pulpit and sang the most convincing sermon on the creed that I've ever heard. And of course it was convincing, not because it made any sense to my rational brain, but because it was so profoundly beautiful. That's why we have deep beauty as one of the core values of this cathedral, because through deep beauty, we're able to access this divine, sacred presence without it being you know, interrupted by our brains, but just get in the way sometimes. This is why God wanted to become flesh. Not to sit around all day staring at a smartphone, but to do this, to be in the presence of beauty that we can feel and know in our own bodies, even when we can't fully understand it. The other day I was listening to a great Irish poet reading some of his favorite poems, and he pulled out something kind of old and obscure, and he read it, and I didn't catch the name of it, um, but he read it, and I, I just felt like, I don't understand this poem. 
And then afterwards he read it and he said, well, isn't that beautiful? I don't understand a word of it, but isn't it beautiful? I'm like, wow, that's like church. Barbara Brown Taylor, the Episcopal priest and writer, she writes about this very important thing in Christianity in her book called An Altar in the World. She calls this the practice of incarnation. The practice of incarnation, of being in the body with the full confidence that God speaks the language of the flesh. I'm going to quote just one little paragraph of hers. Why else, she says, why else did Jesus spend his last night on earth teaching his disciples to wash feet and share supper? With all of the conceptual truths in the universe at his disposal, he did not give them something to think about together when he was gone. Instead, he gave them concrete things to do, specific ways of being together in their bodies that would go on teaching them what they needed to know when he was no longer around to teach them himself. I love that. Last time I was in this pulpit was Easter Vigil and I talked about practicing resurrection. Now we're talking about practicing incarnation. Well, as it turns out, it's the same thing because loving one another in theory only gets us so far. Disembodied love, love fueled by fantasy, notions, ideas, semblances, appearances, projections, the love communicated through texting and viewing and swiping. It's only a, a pale imitation of the real thing, of course. God did not come to earth for that kind of love. Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us that Jesus came here to give us something to do, not to think about. She says, when I hear people talk about what is wrong with organized religion, or why their mainline churches are failing. I hear about bad music, inept clergy, mean congregations, and preoccupation with institutional maintenance. I almost never hear about the intellectualization of faith, which strikes me as a far greater danger than anything else on the list. In an age of information overload, when a vast variety of media delivers news faster than most of us can digest, the last thing any of us needs is more information about God. We need the practice of incarnation, she says, by which God saves the lives of those whose intellectual ascent has turned as dry as dust, who have run frighteningly low on the bread of life who are dying to know more God in their bodies. Not more about God, but more God. It turns out that the early church founders felt very strongly about this, so much so that they, they saw the spread of a disembodied faith in the name of Jesus in the form of Gnosticism to be potentially ruinous for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can question their methods, which included, I'm sorry to say, 
searching out and burning just about every copy of the Gnostic Gospels that they could get their hands on. I regret that. We can easily criticize the zeal with which they defended this quite troubling idea that God is in the flesh. But we rarely pause to appreciate what it is, what it was that they were seeking to preserve. You know, this radical, blasphemous idea that God, the perfect, unmoved ideal, could inhabit a body that smells and ages and sags and emits gas, that God could occupy an ordinary mortal body that could be crucified and shamed and killed. That was an obscenity to the Greek mind and to the Jewish mind. But to the early church, it was precisely here in this corruptible flesh that God comes home. It's all well and good to have ideas about God. It's fine to believe in God with well-crafted creeds. But as Stanley Hauerwas reminds us, Christianity is not a set of beliefs or doctrines one believes in order to be a Christian. Rather, Christianity is to have one's body shaped, one's habits determined in such a way that the worship of God is unavoidable. I love that. I also love this little poem by Anne Sexton. She wrote, God loafs around heaven without a shape, but he would like to smoke his cigar or bite his fingernails and so forth. God owns heaven, but he craves the earth, the earth with its little sleepy caves, its bird resting at the kitchen window. God does not envy the soul so much. He is all soul but he would like to house it in a body and come down and give it a bath now and then. So I invite you, the next time you take a bath or a shower, consider that you're not giving yourself a bath, you're giving God a bath. <laughs> huh? When you sit down for your lunch today, imagine that it's God tasting your food through you. It is God breathing through you, God loving through you, God laughing until she weeps, God weeping until she, she laughs. Because God is alive in our flesh, teaching us how to love one another just as our bodies love us. Amen.